So I think there are, there are two parts you know, to the conservative or Republican mindset. Number one is just the fascination, you know, gawker slowdown when you drive past an accident, like, holy cow, I can't believe some of the elements of some of these proposals. Uh, there's a certain amount of shock and awe value, you know, out there, and, and that draws in conservatives, of course. But the second part, and this is where I fall in, are, are the people that are that realize that this is an important issue, and I think trying to understand, you know, if there is going to be a common denominator. And I think that that's where there were some pleasant surprises. Who stood out in the CNN climate crisis town hall? How did conservatives react? And did voters even care? We unpack the top takeaways from the seven-hour climate change television marathon in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. I'm here in Los Angeles with Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, as everybody knows. He is a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy and a partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners. Uh, Brandon, did you watch all seven hours of the climate change town hall? Not live, but I did DVR. And, <laughs> the whole uh, thing? Yes. Don't and lie. So I, I got, I, over the course of three or four days, I got to all of it. That's amazing. All right. Kudos to you. So on the line, we have two guests. First, I'll introduce Charles Hernick. He is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. It's a nonprofit organization founded in 2013 to engage Republican policymakers and the public on common sense conservative solutions to address the nation's energy needs while preserving the environment. Charles, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Julie. It's great to be a part of this. Yeah. Well, you are filling in for Shane Skelton, our usual Republican co-host. I'm glad to have you here. And I wanted to just give a quick shout out because I know this event is coming up. It's called National Clean Energy Week and uh, CRESS, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions, is helping put it on. Can you just tell us what that's all about quickly? Sure. It's a pretty big deal. And so if you haven't celebrated National Clean Energy Week at home, uh, you're not too late to the party. This is only year three. But basically, the goal is to engineer a high tide that lifts all boats working in the clean energy space. And so that ranges from usual suspects like solar and wind uh, to geothermal, biomass, nuclear power, uh, talking about natural gas, carbon capture storage, all of the different technologies you would expect. But it's a D.C.-focused event where we have uh, a number of different senators, representatives, folks from the administration, all coming out to talk about what clean energy means uh, in their respective jurisdictions, what kind of policies they're working towards to increase clean energy nationwide. And um, you know, we also have a lot of representatives from the business community coming in to, to speak as well, Lime Scooters, Anheuser-Busch, just to name a, a couple of names. Uh, and then there are events being planned in something like 20 different states. So this is a, a growing movement to uh, see more clean energy deployment and really mainstreaming of, of clean energy. So we're quite excited. So just to confirm, you know, this is a conservative-led organization putting together a big clean energy conference. Do I have that right? Absolutely. And it's not just uh, conservatives that are in attendance. It's certainly a bipartisan uh, event. Last year, we had 29 different governors proclaim it National Clean Energy Week in their uh, respective states, red states, blue states, north, south, east, west. Uh, we had great representation. So it's not just a, 
uh, a red state thing or a conservative thing. It's certainly for everybody that's interested in clean energy policy. Great. So also on the line, we have Emma Faringer-Merchant. She's a staff writer with Green Tech Media. She's on once again, helping us sort out some of the details of the latest Democratic presidential candidate climate plans. Emma, in the last episode, you said you were tracking these plans with a spreadsheet. So what have you got now? Has every presidential candidate, or at least the Democratic ones, um, released a climate plan now? Yeah, the spreadsheet has definitely grown. I have been tracking all of the top candidates, so the 10 who were on the town hall stage for the climate crisis. And it's worth noting, I think, that there are still some other candidates in the race, like Marianne Williamson, who actually does have a climate plan, and then some others like Delaney and, and Messam, who are still who are still technically in the race. Good reminder. It's not just the 10. There's still others <laughs> out there. <laughs> One day we'll whittle it down. Yeah, she was going to... Um help uh prevent the hurricane with our minds uh hurricane Dorian Marianne Williamson yeah, yeah. with our mind our mind power was going to divert the hurricane you live in Venice Beach I'm surprised you weren't saying the same thing Brandon <laughs> <laughs> you meditate Julia <laughs> um I'm not very present or uh, namaste I must admit um okay so moving on let's get into the meat of this town hall I want to know what your initial reactions were. This, again, was the seven-hour marathon climate change town hall. Each candidate had 40 minutes to discuss uh, their, their climate plans with the CNN hosts and take questions from the audience. I guess, Brandon, this forum came two weeks after the Democratic National Committee rejected a party activist effort to get an official sanctioned climate debate. But then, of course, CNN stepped up. MSNBC has an event. Is this the type of event that Democrats were hoping for? Let's specifically talk about the seven-hour CNN town hall. Was that what the what you guys wanted? I want to make a few points, Julia. Number one, I thought it was excellent. Number two, this is another example of how the Twitterverse and establishment uh, can be wrong. Going into this, a lot of the conventional wisdom on Twitter was that, oh, this would be a disaster. The candidates would attack each other's plans. They would promote crazy liberal plans that outdo each other that would hurt us in the general election. CNN would not ask the right questions. A lot of snarkiness about seven hours being too long. Uh, but what really happened was in, the, in, the, in their own way, all the candidates did you know, really great. And CNN did a fantastic job. The audience questions were terrific. I think whomever the nominee is, they can aggregate the best of the policies and messages that you heard at the town hall that night. Um, Elizabeth Warren already adopted uh, Jay Inslee's plan. Mayor Buttigieg was very great on rural and faith issues tying it to climate. Senator Booker on environmental justice. Uh, Bernie Sanders has moral clarity on climate messaging. And Vice President Biden, you know, he exhibited that American can-do attitude. You know, he said, don't hang our heads. You know, this is he 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 made dealing with climate patriotic. Uh, so I think they all, you know, did a fantastic job. The, the next point I want to make is that uh, none of this was possible without the Green New Deal and activism, I believe. So what Sunrise and all the other environmental groups did out there to keep pushing. Now, they didn't get a debate, but they got a town hall where the candidates were able to be very substantive and thoughtful on this issue. Um, I think uh, kudos to them. Uh, this, this wasn't happening before, and I think it's happening now because of the activism that's out there. And the last point I want to make is what a contrast to the Republicans. I mean, could you imagine a Republican climate town hall? I wonder who would they put up there? What would they say? Uh, I think this is going to be a big issue for the Democrats to run on the general election. Charles, that sounds like a tee up for you. Do you want to respond to Brandon on what a Republican town hall would be like? Sure. I think that you'd have a different 
group and certainly a group that's that's more focused on uh, specific and tangible results. You'd probably see folks like Senator Alexander, Congressman uh, Matt Gates, just to name two. I think that that's maybe the the challenge that we Republicans have is that we're not um, as front and center with climate change as an existential threat, but have taken a more, I would say, nuanced view uh, to addressing you know the issue and focusing either specifically on clean energy or specifically on greenhouse gas emissions reductions. So there's there's a there there, but I think in in terms of I, you know, I appreciate Brandon's ability to watch all all seven hours even on on DVR. I think that most Americans weren't watching and weren't paying attention, but that's not to say that there's nothing good. Uh, that came about it. I'm a Republican who's been working in energy, environment, and climate change for well over a decade. And I'm interested in what carries forward. Uh, And specifically, if there's going to be any opportunity to engage uh, on a bipartisan basis and and create real durable climate policy, I don't want to be in a position um, where if there is a, a Democrat president, and that's not even a sure thing, that there is someone who we as Republicans can work with and pass uh, meaningful policy that doesn't upend the federal government's relationship with the people of the country. So I'm curious, you know, what did you, so I'm curious, what were Republican responses to the Democratic, you know, climate change town hall? Were there ideas that people were resonating with and genuinely curious about learning uh, more about? Or was it really just limited to what I've seen reported in some of the more conservative news outlets, you know, drawing on specific um, points about, say, banning straws or cheeseburgers, the sort of <laughs> language we've heard before, which, you know, it, I, I understand that those were some good sound bites. I see, you know, perhaps why they did that, but it really didn't add anything to the conversation. So I'm curious, what are what are you seeing and hearing that maybe is not presented in cable news? Which, by the way, on that point, you should watch Elizabeth Warren's response. If you didn't watch all seven hours, watch what Elizabeth Warren had to say about that particular question. Right. I'll just quickly note, yeah, she she pivoted quickly away from the responsibility on individuals, put it specifically on three industries, I believe buildings, oil. On uh, the polluters who want us talking about stupid stuff like straws and the price of a hamburger, and they have an economic interest for us to do that rather than solving the problem. Fair. Okay. Sorry, Charles. Over to you on the Republican responses. Sure. I think that there's there's probably two camps. I, I do a fair amount of interviews and conversations on conservative talk radio. This is, you know, AM radio uh, or FM or, or XM satellite stuff uh, that is good and important because it gives me a good sense of where conservative audience is. You know, the polls tell us that Republicans believe that climate change is real overwhelmingly. They want to see Republicans step up uh, in a greater fashion uh, than has been done. So I think there are, there are two parts you know, to the conservative or Republican mindset. Number one is just the fascination, you know, gawker slowdown when you drive past an accident, like, holy cow, I can't believe some of the elements of some of these proposals. Uh, there's a certain amount of shock and awe value you know, out there, and, and that draws in conservatives, of course. But the second part, and this is where I fall in, are, are the people that, are, that realize that this is an important issue for younger Republicans specifically, it's a generational issue uh, where they firmly expect elected officials to address climate change because it's something that needs to be dealt with in their lifetimes to really look at what are some of the meaningful policies and and I think trying to understand you know if there is going to be a common denominator and I think that that's where 
there were some pleasant surprises, you know, in in my mind, where there were a couple of candidates, uh, Mayor Pete, Senator Klobuchar, who are less interested in taking options off the table and pursuing some of those. Uh, you can call them middle of the road pathways, or you can call them, you know, pathways that are are closer to an all of the above approach that has been historically successful and led the United States to be number one in the world in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think we can't forget that historical trajectory and what got us there. Uh, and, and that's one thing that I think a lot of folks are interested in learning more about and, and seeing how candidates address those issues. So just to confirm, you see the polling, because it all depends on what type of survey question you're looking at or poll you're looking at, but you are seeing a growing interest among the general Republican voter uh, in climate change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one where, you know, you can go to Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. We do a number of different polls. We recently teamed up uh, with a a millennial organization, American Conservation Coalition, uh, and did a poll to better understand it. And and the tendency is for younger Republicans to be more interested in in specific climate action. But really, it's it's across the board. Uh, And well over 50% of, of men and women irrespective of the age range, want to see climate action. Even a fair amount of Trump voters want to see specific climate responses, and that's over 50%. So I think this is one of those issues that that matters to people, whether it's a top-tier issue, is to be determined. So on that note, I want to highlight some reporting in the New York Times. They looked at some of the Republican responses, specifically from representatives. And uh, there's Rep. Greg Walden of Oregon. Uh, He's the ranking member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, Following the town hall, he called for beefing up nuclear power, which he called safe, reliable and emissions free. Then there's also Representative Dan Crenshaw of Texas, who pointed out, who pointed to other measures like carbon capture and storage technology. So there was some legitimate and I think genuine responses from uh, Republicans following this. So to your point, Brandon, I think it is a kudos to the organizers who made this possible. So going back to the Democratic side, and Emma, I want to bring you in here. What were some of the most notable takeaways for you uh, that differentiated Democratic candidates uh, following the town hall? Yeah, I think it was actually pretty noteworthy that there was some news during the seven hours, lots of filler in between. But I I guess I wouldn't actually call it filler. I think there was a lot of interesting questions, and I agree that both the audience and CNN did a great job um, sort of winnowing in on some differences between candidates. A couple of the things that made headlines were that Kamala Harris said she would ban fracking on public lands and would move to also ban fracking on private lands and would work with Congress to do that. There were some divisions on nuclear energy that that came about. Warren said she would phase out nuclear energy, which had been a bit hazy before what she actually intended to do with nuclear. Sanders is obviously very opposed to nuclear. And and as was, I think, said already, Cory Booker is is quite pro-nuclear, as is Andrew Yang. So Harris talked a little bit about that as well, about the, the waste associated with nuclear. But her position is still a little bit unclear there, but we did get some more clarity on where some of the candidates stand on nuclear power. Um, I actually think that I'm going to challenge Brandon a bit on this. I think that Biden's segment was a little bit unclear. I mean, he was really uh, spent a lot of his, his 40 minutes talking about a natural gas fundraiser 
that was hosted by a natural gas company co-founder. And I thought he really had to defend himself for a lot of it. And I wish that we would have gotten to hear a bit more about his plan, which is, you know, sort of a foil to a lot of the the more progressive plans that we've seen from some candidates like Sanders and, and Warren. So that was something that really stuck out to me about um, the town hall. To take a moment on Biden, I did also pick up on that. He kept saying, we're burying our heads in the sand. We're not taking action. And then I didn't take away anything concrete besides him talking about, again, electric vehicle chargers, which is part of his plan, but perhaps not even the most important part. And it just didn't feel, it sounded more like a lecture and not super inspiring. And as you mentioned, he did take a question from the audience asking about his no fossil fuel money pledge and then why he was attending this fundraiser, which I believe he actually did ultimately attend. Yes. Yeah, I would say with with these forums, um, it was a good uh, format because you really got to know the candidates better. Uh, They got to answer questions um, beyond just a 30 second soundbite. And I think, you know, on Biden, you saw the best and the worst of Biden, right? You saw that the best of him was, you know, this patriotic call to action. Also, his um, remarks about the global uh, problem and how he would handle this uh, with with other countries. That's such an important part of this issue. And I thought he did a good job. You know, he has great foreign policy experience. Uh, but also, there was a blind spot there on his fundraiser. And I do think that, you know, hurt him. And, and you see some of these candidates have said, well, we're not taking, you know, high dollar donor money and we're not doing fundraisers like Elizabeth Warren. That was a risky position to take when she announced her campaign, but she didn't have those kind of problems now that that Joe Biden had at that at, at that forum where I think that did hurt him a little bit. Yeah. And his point about global action, while it is accurate that the U.S. makes up something like 15 percent of global emissions, it is a line we do hear more often from conservative leaning or more moderate candidates or, or politicians talking about, well, we can only do so much anyway, so take the pressure off. And that seemed to be the line that he was was taking. It's not wrong, but also it prompts a debate around the U.S. being the global leader and setting a precedent and things like that. So it was interesting to see Biden go there. However, I'm curious if that is really what a lot of Americans want to hear. They don't want the U.S. to take on all the responsibility. Perhaps Biden's really tuning into something that in our little climate world we are missing out on. So I wonder, Charles, do you think that that Biden's approach is resonating with perhaps more moderate voters to whatever extent you can you've got to got to read on them? Well, I think that's hard for me to answer. But what I can highlight, I think, is is that Biden probably missed an opportunity to bridge the gap between what is U.S. domestic climate policy and U.S. foreign policy. He's a foreign policy pro. And if there's anybody that understands the role that natural gas exports uh, and U.S. dominance in the oil markets has made a huge difference, if there's anybody that understands that, it's, it's Joe Biden. Right now, with the skirmishes in Iran, stuff that's happening in the Middle East, if we reversed to the late 70s and early 80s, there would be gas lines all around the block, fuel shortages. The economy would be tanking because fuel prices would have gone up so much. But we have come to a point where we are largely energy independent. And that's a really big deal from a, not just from a, a U.S. economy standpoint, from a, but from a geopolitical standpoint, too, where we are able to sell oil and gas to our friends and allies abroad who are still using it. And irrespective of what U.S. policy is, you know, you look at the, the best forecast from the U.S. government, from BP, from anybody, there's a fair amount of oil and natural gas built into the system for the next 20 years 
And if we walk away from these markets, we are directly handing money and power to Russia and not our allies in the Middle East who are dead set on using that power against us and use that money to repress and, and oppress people in their own countries. So I, I think it's a really bad situation. And I really wish that someone like Joe Biden or anyone could have made made that link. Interesting. So on the fossil fuel piece, uh, as Emma noted, um, Bernie Sanders is opposed to fracking, and he and Kamala Harris have called for total bans on natural gas extraction. I know you're talking about fossil fuels more broadly there, Charles, but just to you know, continue this line of thinking, um, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, they made vague promises around reviewing the safety of existing wells, but, but did not call for bans on, on natural gas extraction. Klobuchar waffled a little bit, saying that if the methane issue couldn't be addressed, she would potentially oppose fracking uh, to be determined there. Um, and then, of course, Elizabeth Warren, I think actually in the days following the town hall, she clarified that she would ban fracking, quote, everywhere. So that implies the private sector, uh, not just on public lands. And so that I thought was was interesting. And I think even some climate experts and energy experts were wondering how the heck she could do that. That was a commitment she said she would do on day one. Uh, I guess, Emma, have you heard any more chatter about Elizabeth Warren's statement there on fracking? Not much, but I think that it would probably work in a similar way to what Sanders and and Harris have said that they, you know, Harris said that she would do public lands on day one and then would work with Congress to be able to end fracking everywhere else. And I think that, you know, while a lot of these presidential candidates are talking more about their the executive actions that they would be able to take as president you're definitely going to have to work with Congress and legislators for some of these plans that they're proposing. I would say, you know, this week, a lot of the attention on climate was focused on the town hall, was focused on Hurricane Dorian, was focused on Trump using a Sharpie marker to expand the map uh, of what the hurricane's path was. Um, But Underneath all of that, a few notable things happen that are directly related to this debate about fracking. Number one, Volkswagen is rolling out their car uh, electric vehicle this week with, they say, a hundred dollar per kilowatt hour battery. So um, for those that's of you, the holy grail. <laughs> that's the holy grail. That's the that's cost parity. That's what all, all the experts cars. have said with gas cars. So mm-hmm. like we may be hitting this right now. You look at a couple of other things. Uh, Bloomberg came out with a study this week or referenced a study by Rocky Mountain Institute that said natural gas plants may be uneconomical by 2035, where that means that operating a natural gas plant in 2035 would be more expensive than building a new plant powered by renewables and energy storage. And so these assets, you're building a natural gas plant, these are 30, 40, 50-year assets, right? So they're going to be uneconomical before they're even paid off. So, and, and you look at the practicality of this, here in LA, we had three natural gas plants that the LADWP, our utility, operates. They're retiring those in favor of renewables and battery storage. They signed a deal, we've talked about this on the show, 3.3 cents a kilowatt hour uh, for battery storage and solar power. That's firm power. That's power, you know, that is cheaper now than natural gas. So yeah. I'm with you, Charles. Let's have energy dominance, but let's energy dominate in the, with the newest, best technologies, renewables and energy storage. This is this is a great point. And Brandon, one where I, I'm sure we do see agreement and getting down 
that cost curve, uh, whether it be for, for EVs or for renewables that would compete with natural gas. And I think that your point is a good one. This is a market-based market-led transition where we're seeing competition between companies to get there first. And that's a that's a great kind of thing and something that the types of policies that I'm interested in as a Republican would, would champion. I want to see a race to the top instead of government picking winners and losers uh, and dictating to the American public what kind of energy you're going to get. And, you know, Trump will talk about it to, to one full end of the spectrum where you know, you can't watch your, you know, Saturday Night Live because the wind turbines stopped blowing or something like that. That's not true, and that's not helpful uh, to the to the energy dialogue. But I do think that there is a there's a lesson that might that that, I'm, that might not be learned uh, by some of the Democrats in this debate. And this is one where, if you read Hillary Clinton's book, what happened, she regrets pitting interests against coal miners, because I think that anytime you have a presidential candidate that is selecting certain groups of people to have their jobs be eliminated, whether that be coal miners or folks that are in fossil fuel, people that are involved in fracking, I don't know how you win the state of Pennsylvania as a Democrat if you're talking about ending fracking and something that has just driven millions of dollars into their you know, economy. So, or, or talking about nuclear power plants, each of which employs thousands of people um, you're talking about sending those people home uh, and then trying to promise or them a government Charles, job. I don't know how smart those politics are. So I'm, I'm interested to see which of these plans and ideas carry forward and which are left by the wayside uh, because of lessons learned. Just because one job, you know, is taken away doesn't mean it can't be replaced with a renewable energy or, you know, battery storage job or an installation job. You know, Tom Steyer released his plan today. You know, I think he says 46 million clean energy jobs he can create. Bernie Sanders is talking about 20 million jobs. You know, it's just like with um, travel agents and people that work at Blockbuster Video. You know, those jobs can go to other places. Uh, and so the Democrats have plans to transition those workers into a high paying job. You know, that that is a union job uh, and it's better than going into a coal mine and getting black lung and, and getting sick. You know, you can work in the sunshine, be up on a roof installing, you know, solar panel or in a home installing a battery or in a building swapping out the HVAC for an electric heat pump. These are great jobs. I am going to push back on that a little bit because I do think about the individual person's life journey, you know, and it sounds great on paper to say, oh, coal jobs, natural gas jobs to clean jobs. It's not that simple. Those jobs and companies don't necessarily exist in those geographic areas where people are tied to their homes and mortgages or their schools and families. The training takes several years to do. And there is a problem when you think about solar installation specifically. I looked this up the other day because I was covering a coal miners uh, union press conference, which happened actually just before the town hall. And they were saying, hey, look, Trump has not saved us. We're not doubting. We're not saying that he was correct in reviving the U.S. coal industry. But these Democratic plans are making us super nervous as well. We can't even get our benefits. And now they're saying we're going to just give us these solar jobs. But they make about half of what a coal miner would make, just the installation. So I confirm those numbers that they make about 25 to maybe up to $40 an hour. And they're not necessarily union jobs. And so there's just a complicated factor there. And because we're not talking about five years voting, we're talking about voting next year. This is why this personal lived experience in this moment, I think, is so key. And it's you can't just brush over it and say, oh, go from this job to that one. And in fact, I actually think the clean energy economy might be hurting itself by suggesting coal workers have to go into clean energy. Why not just say 
other jobs, you know, that could maybe be a more uh, holistic way of thinking about this uh, transition, quote unquote. Well, many of these plans depend on federal procurement. And with federal procurement, you can dictate the rules. You can dictate they have to pay a certain wage. And you can provide incentives to locate in certain areas that are hardest hit by this transition. You could create incentives to, you know, locate a gigafactory or two in Pennsylvania. That can be done. That's what these candidates are talking about. Yeah, I mean, to people who can get it done by all means, I'm just sort of voicing the concern that I'm hearing among, say, coal miners. And I think that's fair. And I think, you know, that's on the Democratic candidates to drive home that message specifically about how this will impact you in your local area, because the unions are not totally on board with this. That's for sure. Uh, and, you know, there's 80,000 fracking jobs in Pennsylvania, and they have to understand very clearly what this means for them. And yeah. so I think, it, you know, you're raising a good point, but I think I have confidence that our candidates can go deliver that message uh, accurately to them. I guess, Emma, to you, what are some of the plans that you're seeing with elements looking at the transition for communities that might get left behind let's there's a whole environmental justice piece i want to get to because there's definitely communities getting left behind on that front but thinking specifically more about fossil fuel workers can you highlight any plans that do address that yeah there definitely are some but i think that in terms of the actual nitty-gritty specifics of a lot of those plans a lot of candidates haven't really dug deep i will say that some of the candidates like but a judge has regional resilience hubs that he wants to set up around the country a lot of candidates have set aside actual funds of varying amounts to either pay communities to transition or set up different programs in those communities like trainings or educational programs. Yeah, I'll note that Bernie Sanders has pledged $1.3 trillion, apparently, to ensure that coal miners and workers in other carbon-intensive industries receive strong benefits, a living wage, retraining, and job placement. So that is one instance of a specific. Yeah, so also Buttigieg has, um, in his plan that was recently released, he said he'd set out $200 billion in transitional funds for community economic development, which would include like training and other types of educational programs. Harris has actually introduced an act called the 21st Century Skills Act, which would offer $8,000 for unemployed, dislocated, or underemployed workers to get skills training and education. So we are seeing some specific quantifications of different programs that Democratic candidates want to include in these different communities, but others have, you know, made more overarching and general statements about transitional workers. And I think what Julia said about maybe the one-for-one -one trade is is something to think about whether whether that's actually resonating with those communities and whether that actually works for those communities. So I think that's a great point. I guess, Charles, what do you think? What are you hearing perhaps as you travel around the country in communities where fossil fuel jobs are prevalent? Are any of the Democratic plans, those points that Emma just highlighted, are those resonating with people? Do they feel like, you know, the candidates are looking out for them or is it totally getting lost in the noise? Yeah, I think it's too early to tell if, if people are latching on to the specifics of the, the plans. But I think that the, the real question in my mind is, will people accept the trade-off, whether it be millions or billions or trillions that are being spent on job creation, job training programs, um, green jobs, however you want to count or define that for a sacrifice of 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that I choose versus whatever Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders chooses. And I think that some of the messages may sound great, you know, in urban areas where you walk down the block and there are 15 different places where you can get a job. I think that in rural America, I, I you know, spent, I'm originally from Minnesota and I spend a, a week of my summer back in Minnesota and part of Wisconsin, where in the areas where you can't see your neighbor, unless you get in your car and drive, uh, which is a, a big part of America and a big part of you know, the votes that any presidential candidate needs to be able to, to win to, to turn this election in, in his or her favor. For those folks that really do value their personal independence and, and liberty and, and have been at their jobs and have been entrenched in their communities for a long time, I think that's a much bigger uphill battle and a bigger, uh, a more challenging sell, which is why I think that the the Midwest candidates really did stand out to me in, in this debate that they weren't willing to just uh, pander as, as far left and talk about uh, hundreds of or tens of trillions instead of just a few trillions. Not that that's that much better in terms of, uh, of where our deficit is going to end up and, and solving the problem, how you actually pay for this kind of stuff. Uh, but I, I was pleasantly surprised um, with with some of the the Midwestern candidates that I think were, were really focused and didn't want to foreclose on options you know, for people didn't want to take uh, particular livelihoods off the table, uh, but did focus on innovation, next generation technologies, responsible environmental reviews and policies for, for natural gas. Uh, I think that that resonates a lot more and, you know, is probably more appealing than some of the other stuff. Charles, I'll agree with you that the Midwest candidates uh, provided a uh, really beneficial angle on this. And I think that that is something that if they don't end up being the nominee can be incorporated into the eventual nominee's messaging and eventual policies of hopefully a Democratic you know, president in, in 2021. Uh, but I don't think it's pandering to the left. Uh, I think that some of those more progressive candidates are not pandering. They believe it. They're, they're trying to solve the problem and their policies that they're putting forth are trying to match the scale of the problem. Emma, you mentioned uh, Buttigieg's uh, plan. He put it out, I believe, the day of the town hall or just before. Can you emphasize any of the other pieces of that you would highlight? Yeah, so Buttigieg had some interesting and I think innovative portions of his plan that I didn't see elsewhere. Um, he divided it into these sort of three pillars um, that he called clean energy economy, resilience, and then he wants the U.S. to demonstrate leadership, which is something that we talked a little bit about with you know, that sort of Biden-esque take at the town hall. So like a lot of the candidates, he said that he wanted to achieve a clean electricity system by 2035. And by that same year, he wants zero emission passenger vehicles. And then he has, you know, some other uh, timelines for heavy duty vehicles, industry, manufacturing and agriculture. But he has some other portions of the plan that I didn't see elsewhere. Like he wants to create a carbon star program, which I would imagine would be modeled after energy star, um, where consumers can decide based on the ranking of the product or, or the rating of the product through the program, whether they want to purchase it. That's obviously, I think a pretty popular and by a pretty popular program that I think has bipartisan support. I think it would probably have to work differently than energy star because with energy savings, you're actually saving money for the consumer. And I'm not sure if that would be the case with something that was more climate friendly, but that would depend on how it was manufactured, obviously. Um, he also talks about a global investment initiative, which would be $250 billion, with a $250 billion 
public-private match to build U.S. spread technologies in developing countries. So basically making the U.S. a leader in these clean energy technologies and then being able to offer those technologies elsewhere around the world, which I think is an interesting take and something that could appeal to those communities where, um, you know, manufacturing is, is really important. And then as I talked about before, he has an idea for regional resilience hubs, which are basically sound like these collaborative organizations that have policymakers, businesses, community leaders, and citizens that all work together to come up with the best solutions for resilience in the area, which would be really directed, I think, regionally to come up with the best solutions. If I could just jump in really quickly on the the carbon star mention and obviously this is you know the details need to be worked out but i do want to highlight why a voluntary standard or metric is appealing to conservatives and is something that an organization like mine citizens for responsible energy solutions we view as a really near term solution that could gain bipartisan support you've got to be able to imagine if there's a system where the federal government recognizes net zero emissions or 100% clean energy products as a differentiator, um, you've got to be able to imagine the almost immediate and powerful impact that that could have for consumers. There are a lot of companies that are out there that already report their carbon dioxide emissions. It seems like every day, if you open up the Wall Street Journal, there's another company that is trying to do 100% uh, renewable corporate procurement. And these are good things that if we can aggregate them at the national level and create some kind of consistent labeling or standard or, or federal you know, clearinghouse um, so that customers do have that option, it, it could be very powerful when people are trying to make the decision, do I shop at Target or do I shop at Walmart? Do I shop on Amazon or something else? And to, to understand those carbon implications uh, could be very meaningful and impactful you know, in, in the short run. And it could bring to life some of the more tricky areas where, where folks are working. If you're looking at Occidental Petroleum, what they're trying to do to create in the next decade, net zero emissions, fossil fuels, so that they've sequestered so much carbon dioxide upstream before, you know, to inject underground and to get the oil and gas out of the ground so that what you fuel up with at the gas station could be net zero gasoline. That's the kind of thing that if you're going to choose between, you know, the gas station on the left and the gas station on the right, and one of them has net zero emissions gasoline and the other one doesn't, you can imagine where people will make their decisions and where they'll put their purchasing power. I think that's an important area that we can't leave behind is the power of individuals, the power of companies uh, to pursue a profit motive and to pursue something that they want to do, they know it's right, they know it's what their customers want, and to, to let the federal government increase accountability and transparency in that space, that could be a very powerful area for, for working together. That seems to be a theme I'm picking up on is this broader trend as we've learned more about these climate plans around whether you have a big, bold government initiative that's going to do big, exciting things like a national clean energy core or tree planting core a la New Deal or if you're coming up with specific programs designed at incentivizing the private sector, incentivizing consumer behavior, not that you can't do both, but in terms of like parting the seas and trying to put some lines between these approaches, it seems like that's one of the main themes coming out. Brandon, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think you can do both. I mean, we need 
both to unleash the private sector on this because it's much bigger than the government. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get there with just voluntary and, you know, uh, approach and just ceding this to the, you know, free market, um, especially with all the built-in advantages of, you know, the fossil fuel industry they've had for, you know, a hundred years on this. And I think we also have to, you know, think about the moral implications of this. You know, I, I'm curious, Charles, you know, as, as Democrats are talking about this fracking ban, you know, would you raise your family, you know, next to like a fracking well? Well, um, if I had the choice, and I live in Annapolis, Maryland, so it's really not a choice that uh, that I do have, I probably wouldn't. And and I think that that's something where, I guess that's a great privilege that that I have and that that people do have is that you know if if you can make enough money to uh, sell your house or or buy a new house uh, or rent, you do have some geographic you know mobility and an ability to to get around. I know that. You know, in a lot of parts of the country, you know, people are very happy with the fracking that's that's happening in their backyards, and it's it's made a lot of impoverished communities into, you know, people are making millions uh, off of these, you know, oil and gas sales. The executives. That's a big deal, uh, and so that that's where I'm always a fan of leaving that to more of a, a state and and local level here in in Maryland. Governor Hogan, uh, a Republican governor, has opposed uh, fracking uh, because of of the Chesapeake Bay and really the the natural ecosystem here, uh, where there weren't that many oil and gas resources in in the first place, and so foreclosing on that opportunity more than pays for itself in terms of the benefit to to Chesapeake Bay restoration. So that was a nuanced uh, position that that he took, but that's one where where that has been left up to the to states, and and I think that you see a nuanced approach. Pennsylvania doing one thing, New York doing something else. Uh, and and people have that flexibility to uh, move their families, you know, wherever they wherever they want. Uh, I happen to live in Annapolis because um, I met a beautiful woman who lives in Annapolis, and so I'm, I'm living here, you know, and, and commuting into D.C. Uh, so we all make those those decisions. It's hard for me to try to make those decisions for other people. Well, Charles, I appreciate the the honest answer and. Uh, you know, the reason I ask is, you know, one of the great privileges I've had in being involved with the Solutions Project is, um, you know, participating in that environmental justice community and talking to people who live on the front lines of this. And it's easy for a lot of people on Twitter or in academic papers and sitting around in D.C. to talk about, you know, these, um, you know, highbrow, you know, policies. Uh, but, you know, kids are getting sick that live around these fracking wells. And if there's a better way to do this, uh, where kids aren't getting sick, you know, I'm glad I'm on the side of that. That's a really good point that I want to spend a few minutes on now is the elements of certain candidates' plans that highlight precisely that, that their community's getting left behind, they're getting sick, they're most exposed to pollution. This has been a longstanding issue, but it is now finally, I think, getting the attention it likely deserves. Um, so, Emma, I know you're, again, looking closely at the plans. Can you highlight some of the candidates' proposals around environmental justice and working in, in on behalf of disadvantaged communities? Yeah, I definitely think it's really exciting how much attention this issue is getting right now. We've seen it sort of break into the, I guess, national discourse in the past few years with the Flint water crisis and now with the Green New Deal. I think candidates have 
made Green New Deal framing central to their climate plans, I think that that's sort of become the standard for at least the uh, more progressive candidates. But several others like Booker, Harris, and Castro, I specifically want to highlight, really did focus on environmental justice. I want to say Warren and Buttigieg also said that they would have further environmental justice plans coming, so we can expect more from them. But some things to highlight so far. So Booker, in his plan, he wants to create a U.S. environmental justice fund, which he says would be the most ambitious federal effort to advance environmental justice. Um, And money there would go to things like replacing and remediating lead lines and paint in schools and housing units. There's currently an issue with lead in Newark where he used to be the mayor. So that's, you know, an issue that I think he's really placed an emphasis on. He also wants an environmental justice innovation fund, which would spend money on research and scaling strategies to advance environmental justice around the U.S. And then he has um, plans for an emergency environmental justice action program, which I think is really interesting. It basically, he plans that it would streamline government responses to emergency situations like the Flint water crisis. A lot of times these very urgent situations get caught up in bureaucracy and people in Flint are still waiting for clean water when that's clearly an emergency. So he wants to make sure that doesn't happen. Harris has also threaded environmental justice through her plan, leaning on her work on that issue um, in the district attorney's office in San Francisco. One thing that I thought was really interesting about Harris's plan is that she draws a lot on legislation that's already been introduced, like Gillibrand's Build Local, Hire Local Act. She talks about her own 21st Century Skills Act, Senator Udall's Wildlife Corridors Conservation Act. So I think she's maybe trying to demonstrate that these ideas are already out there but also, we, you know, we know that just because legislation gets proposed doesn't mean it, it always goes through, especially in, in Congress right now. And in terms of Castro's plan, he wants to create an executive order that requires the government to consider disparate health and environmental impacts into law. And he wants to include carbon equity scoring on federal spending. Um, Those are just two of his ideas. He also wants to reform the Office of Civil Rights Compliance, which is, if you know anything about the the EPA's civil rights compliance record, it's not that great. The EPA is really slow at investigating those complaints and often doesn't find that there is any violation. So I think that streamlining those processes is, is definitely a great idea. In terms of his carbon equity scoring and assessing the environmental justice impacts of different laws, I think is akin to what Harris and Representative Ocasio-Cortez just introduced with the Climate Equity Act. So it's interesting to see some of those ideas sort of being discussed among all of the candidates. And and you see these candidates picking up a lot of ideas from each other and iterating on them. And that's happening in the environmental justice space of their plans as well. Well, nothing else like your point, Brandon, sounds like there's a consensus forming around some key policy pillars that no matter who the candidate is, they might adopt. Yeah. And one of the, I think, great pieces of advice that AOC has provided is, uh, and I'm guilty of violating this myself, uh, she said, um, instead of leading with the five facts, lead with uh, the five senses and how it makes people feel. Um, And the environmental justice, you know, piece of this is really is really key you know kids getting sick um you know people who who say that they support fracking but wouldn't raise their family around a fracking well you know that seems kind of hypocritical to me charles do you want to jump in on any of the environmental justice pieces of it yeah i think it's it's interesting because 
it's somewhat distracting from the reducing greenhouse gas emissions component of solving you know the climate problem and there's nothing wrong with uh focusing efforts on uh improving the quality of lives for, for folks that are economically distressed you know the tax package from two years ago focused on opportunity zones. I hope we see a lot of revitalization of, of blighted urban and rural areas because of that. You know, and you look at Senator Booker's plan, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, replacing lead pipes and focusing on Superfund and, and planting trees. These are all good things, but only two out of those three really have something to do, or only one out of those three really has something to do with, with climate change. The lead pipes issue is long and outstanding. Uh, Superfund has been a, a problem and has been underfunded, uh, you know, since the 70s. And so these are, you know, these are adding more uh, items to the fire. And, and if that's a successful approach for for Democrats, that that's, you know, that's fine. But in, in my view, it's a little bit distracting from the, the focus that we need to have, which is how do we writ large reduce greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as possible with me as many options on the table as possible. And the, the sad part about the environmental justice component is that you often pit environmentalist, environmental justice interests versus labor interests. And, and just here in Maryland, uh, Baltimore specifically, where jobs are scarce and economic opportunity is a, a luxury for, for some people, where, where environmental justice advocates are looking to close down a waste to energy plant because it, it pollutes but labor folks, the people that actually have jobs there, really want to keep it because they don't want to go along with the rest of Baltimore in, in terms of losing jobs and, and seeing those jobs move elsewhere uh, because they are wedded to their communities. So uh, there is a real point where the rubber meets the road. Um, and I think that you know, in, investment in, in some of the longstanding environmental issues is, is important. But where that relationship is to climate change, uh, it confuses me sometimes. But uh, you know, this is one where, where that'll settle out over time, I guess. It'll be interesting to see if a candidate can really resonate here and um, have their vision really resonate because climate and energy, in my mind, tie into the broader issue. What do you do to have a modern economy in this day and age? And this is a sector where jobs can be local because energy is largely generated and produced locally, no matter what type it is. And so it'd be interesting to see if someone's vision actually resonates on that front because there's a massive opportunity here. But I totally take your point, Charles, that there's a specific human lives element here that cannot be overlooked as much as we'd like to with our planning and what could happen statistically, et cetera. And it does come in conflict sometimes with what needs to happen climate-wise. Emma, did you have a final thought on this? Yeah, I wanted to just note that I think that there there is a bit, a bit more of a connection than is being discussed. I mean, you know, I think it can be difficult to see how these issues are are all related, but, you know, like in the Carolinas, Last year with um, some of the hurricanes, obviously, climate change makes those storms stronger. And then those storms created issues with coal ash, those, the coal ash contaminated communities. Um, and coal ash was already a problem before. So I think that these issues of contamination, environmental justice, health are all interrelated. And I think that what will be compelling is the candidate that's able to successfully integrate all of them and explain them to voters in a way that they understand and understand the urgency to deal with all of them. I guess the final thing I thought was interesting was Kamala Harris making a part of her plan focused on specifically justice, talking about taking corporations to court. Uh, she talked about her history of opening a review into ExxonMobil in 2016 and their framing of climate risks. 
she's also sued other companies uh, in California, uh, including Volkswagen and the Plains All-American Pipeline Company. So she drew on that background to say that she would be suing polluters, basically. And I thought that was another twist on the uh, justice piece here. Uh, and I'm curious, I know how that will go. I'll speak to that a, a little bit. It, it, it makes the math complicating. If you're both going to pay for all of the big spending and direct procurement programs that you have planned while also eliminating an industry. Uh, and so that doesn't seem like a sustainable tax base if it's not going to exist uh, in, in the near future. And, and if you've taxed it to death, um, then there's certainly no way to pay for some of these longer term investments over time. And, and I think that that maybe raises one of the bigger problems in my mind is that energy, and Julia, you mentioned this earlier, is historically provided at a more local level um, and has been historically dominated by the private sector and regulated by states. So when you talk about a federal clean energy standard or when you talk about trillions of dollars in direct federal procurement for clean energy, you're talking about taking away power and a historical right from states. And there's going to be resistance to that. And so I think that that's an important flag to put out there uh, that irrespective of, of the state, for states that are very far down the road, you look at states like Maryland, New York, California, any federal policy that totally upends and supersedes those plans, like a carbon tax, um, might encounter more local resistance than, than folks would expect. Well, I take your point on states' rights, although I think some people are kind of confused by the Trump administration's tact on, uh, I think, going after automakers who made a an agreement with the state of California over fuel economy standards. Not just going after using law enforcement. Using, using law the enforcement. DOJ. That's scary stuff. Right. States' rights, uh, I think. <laughs> <laughs> states I'll, rights. I'll not comment on that one. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it there on the Climate Change Town Hall and move to our final segment of the show. So this is Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts say something redeeming or polite about the opposing political party. And Emma, you can weigh in here if you've got something. Brandon, let's go to you first. Our sponsor, Governor Schwarzenegger, is on a roll this week. Uh, two op-eds that he put out, uh, one on this issue of um, the uh, fuel economy standards uh, and Trump wanting to revoke California's waiver to have a higher standard on this. Governor Schwarzenegger wrote, whether it is political pettiness, short-sightedness, or just plain jealousy, I couldn't tell you. I can tell you that it's wrong, it's un-American, and it's an affront to long-standing conservative principles. So uh, Governor Schwarzenegger taking a very strong stand uh, against this. You know, stuff by Trump that is uh, really, really concerning. Really applaud that. And he also wrote another op-ed that you should check out about gerrymandering uh, this week uh, that got a lot of attention. So, Governor Schwarzenegger, thank you. All right, Charles. Sure. I think that Democrats and, and specifically some of the activists have done a great job stirring the pot when it comes to clean energy and climate change. Uh, I think a lot of these presidential candidates find themselves in the pot and they're trying to figure out what uh, what it's going to look like. But as a Republican who is sincerely interested in finding uh, discrete policies that, that we can work on on Capitol Hill in state capitals to advance clean energy, reduce costs for Americans, increase options, uh, there's more 
ideas on the table coming from the left. And I think that that's going to be hopefully fodder for, for future discussion and, and hopefully ultimate uh, passage of some meaningful bills. Well, from a media perspective, I don't know what the heck they're going to cover on this MSNBC two-day climate change event. We feel like we've got a lot of material out there, but I'm sure I'll get flack for that. There's plenty more to discuss, but uh, we do have a lot out there already. Uh, Emma, can you close us out here? I don't think I have anything to share for you to say anything nice. It's been a, a kind of frustrating news week with um, what's going on with uh, Noah and and the Trump administration's confusion about hurricanes. So I think I'm just going to plead the fifth for now. <laughs> That's totally fair. All right. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And this is where we'll end it. Again, you can find Political Climate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, pretty much all the podcasting platforms. Julia, you forgot the dark web. We're also on the dark web. Imagine we had like a big dark web. <laughs> That's where Shane is today. That's where Shane, Shane is. Shane's on the dark web doing his own show. Oh, God. Wow. Um, all right. Please remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. I uh, really appreciate those who've done it so far. Tweet at us at poly underscore climate on Twitter. Let us know your feedback. Thanks again for listening. And until next time. Thanks.